What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Good evening. Um, How kind of you all to come. Uh, David Brooks uh, is going to speak for a little bit, and then we'll have a conversation, and then I will invite questions from all of you. So um, uh, keep those in mind as you're going along. Let me just say by way of introduction, uh, presumably you know that uh, David Brooks is a columnist for the New York Times. He is uh, the conservative liberal's love. Um, He has been the conservative voice at the Times, uh, but in a country which has increasingly uh, been struck with a kind of partisan hysteria from either side. He's had a very balanced, uh, balanced voice uh, about matters of politics and state, but also about matters of the human intellect and the human heart. Um, his last book, um, uh, Dave Cameron, required that his entire cabinet read. You can connect their subsequent performance to that or not, as you <laughs> prefer. Uh, and his current book is uh, number one at the moment on the New York Times bestseller list, and I will let him tell you about it uh, in detail, but I will say merely by way of introduction that it's a really profound and searching look, and that profound and searching is not always something achieved by columnists, even when they write in long form, but it is a profound and searching look really at uh, big and complex and abstract Uh, moral questions and their many concrete applications, a study of what it means to lead a to lead a good life, to lead a worthy life, um, and of how uh, our cultural mores are, in various ways, making it more difficult to do so, or in some few ways making it easier. So without further ado, I will give you David Brooks. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, try not to nod off over the next 25 minutes. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here in this hall, uh, which one has heard so much about, and I'm tempted to announce an expedition to something. Um, <laughs> Starbucks, maybe. Uh, it's also a pleasure to be in England. I, I grew up in a culture, there's a culture in New York, among New York Jewry, the, uh, the tradition is um, uh, act British, think Yiddish. Uh, and so we were, we were a, f- a great tradition of, of great big Anglophiles and the Jews came to America and they decided what they wanted to do was fit in and the, the people they associated with class were the English uh, and so they gave themselves English names thinking that nobody would ever think they were Jewish and so the names they chose were Sidney, Milton, Irving, Norman uh, and within 30 years they were all Jewish names, nobody thinks about them and so I, was, I grew up in that tradition my uh, turtles when I was 8 years old were named Disraeli and Gladstone uh, I went to, I was sent to an Anglican school, uh, Grace Church School in Lower Manhattan. I was part of the all-Jewish boys davening choir at Grace, uh, where we would sing the hymns, but to square with our religion, we wouldn't sing the word Jesus, so the volume would drop down, and it would come back up. Um, and it was um, somewhat, we tried to be classy, but it was a somewhat left-wing home. Um, my parents, uh, in 1966, took me to a B-in in Central Park in Manhattan, where hippies would go just to be. Uh, and one of the things they did was they set a garbage can on fire and then threw their wallets into it to demonstrate their liberation from money and material things. And I was five years old, and I saw a $5 bill on fire in the garbage can, so I reached into the fire, grabbed the money, and ran away. Um, and that was sort of my first step over to the right uh, in my life. Uh, uh, and, um, and so it's landed me a spot uh, being a conservative columnist at the New York Times a job I likened to being the chief rabbi at Mecca, 
uh, not a lot of company. Uh, and so that is one of the twists and turns, though as I've gone a little further to the right in sort of an Edmund Burke sense, I've tried to keep my lifestyle in a liberal progressive direction. So I live in, in a progressive area in Washington, D.C. and in New York, where people drive Saabs and Audis and Volvos. It's socially acceptable to have a luxury car so long as it comes from a country hostile to U.S. foreign policy. So that's, um, uh, And we shop at... Um, progressive grocery stores. We have them here. I saw one here called Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, where all the cashiers look like they're on loan from Amnesty International. Uh, uh, the, actually, the best part about these stores is the snack food section. Uh, it would be vulgar just to have potato chips and pretzels, so they have these seaweed-based snacks, which uh, we get in my household. It's called Veggie Booty with Kale, and it's for kids who come home and say, Mom, Mom, I want a snack that'll help prevent colorectal cancer. And so... Uh, these are the people I live with. Um, and so I try to stay in progressive but high achieving. Uh, and then just the final twist in the lifestyle enclave I live at, we, um, we have a group. If you go to an elementary school, the kids come out with their 80-pound backpacks. So if the, the wind blows them over, they're sort of stuck on the ground like beetles. And they're picked up by these um, women who I've studied, I call Uber moms, who are highly successful career women who, who've taken time off to make sure all their kids can get into Harvard. And you can actually tell the Uber moms because they actually weigh less than their own children. Uh, and so the sort of at the moment of conception, they're doing little butt exercises to stay fit and trim. Um, and the delivery room, they're cutting the umbilical cord themselves, flashing little Mandarin flashcards at the things to get them ready. Um, and so I grew up with these people uh, and try to live in that world. But there are times in life when uh, we have unexpected twists. And one of those times I do a show on Friday nights in D.C. on the Public Broadcasting Network, uh, and I get out around 7.20. And about 10 years ago, I got out and I drove home. Uh, And uh, I drove into my driveway, which was in a suburb called Bethesda, Maryland, and the driveway sidled around the side of the house so I could see into the backyard. And my kids, who were then 12, 9, and 4... We're in the backyard, uh, and they had a ball, a big plastic ball, and they were kicking it up in the air, and the ball was arcing in the wind, and they were running across the yard to be the first one to get to it. And they were tumbling and falling all over each other, just in great hilarity, laughing, and racing across the yard and piling on top of each other. Uh, And it was just like the perfect weather. The sun, sun was coming through the evening trees. The grass was perfectly green. And I just have this, I pull into the driveway and I'm confronted with really a joyous tableau, unexpectedly. And I sat there, um, it it was just one of those moments, just staring through the windshield, uh, where life and time are suspended. Reality sort of spills outside its boundaries. You experience higher pleasure than anything you ever feel at work, and the heart swells, and you become aware of a a gratitude for a beauty you haven't earned, for a happiness you haven't earned. And when you have those moments of of grace, the only thing you feel is a desire to live up to those moments and to try to be worthy of them. And so those, those are moments of moral uplift. And you have those in transcendent moments in life which we can feel in nature and with those we love, You can also find it when you find people who glow with an inner light. And so last summer I was seated next to the Dalai Lama at a luncheon in Washington. And he's a guy who just glows. Uh, He laughs at unexpected moments and for no apparent reason. And you're sitting next to him and you want to laugh with him just to be polite. And you feel you should throw in a joke just to rationalize the laughter that's happening anyway. (laughs) And so I was sitting awkwardly with him and him laughing, me laughing, and I didn't know what to say. And he has a little canvas Dalai Lama bag he carries with him. And uh, I said, you got any candy in there? And so he starts pulling out all the stuff he's got in the bag. And it's basically everything you get in the first-class cabin of an international flight. (laughs) And so he's got the little eye things, the ear pluggies, the little razor, toothbrush, and then a big Toblerone bar. Uh, But when you're with that, you feel uplifted. And he's a celebrity But I was with some women uh, in a place called Frederick, Maryland, a little earlier, who teach immigrants English and then how to read. And I walk into this room of 30 women, age 50 to 80, and they just radiate a patience and a goodness and a kindness. 
uh, and it's an inner light. And they didn't know me from Adam, but they made me feel valued and important. They listened to me. And you just sense people who weren't thinking about how wonderful work they do. They weren't thinking about themselves at all. And so my reaction upon that occasion, these other occasions, is to think I've achieved way more career success than uh, I ever thought I would. But that inner light that those ladies have, I haven't achieved that. And so how do you go about get that? And that's really the genesis of this sort of book, the desire to have some inner goodness. And the book starts with the distinction between the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are the things we bring to the marketplace that make us good at our jobs. The eulogy virtues are the things they say, the things they say about us after we're dead, whether we're kind, courageous, honest, capable of deep love. And we all know the eulogy virtues are more important than the resume virtues. But some of us, myself included, go through long periods of life where we're more clear about how to build a career and how that progression should work than how to build a life of inner depth. And a book that helped me understand this distinction was written in 1965 by a guy named Joseph Soloveitchik called Lonely Man of Faith. Soloveitchik argues that each of us have two sides of our nature, which he calls Adam 1 and Adam 2. Adam 1 is majestic Adam. It's the outward Adam, the resume side. And that's a side worth honoring, to build something, to create something, to discover something, to win some money, maybe a little status. Adam 2 is the internal, the eulogy side. Adam 2 wants to embody certain moral qualities, to have a solid sense of right and wrong, not only to do good, but to be good. And Soloveitchik argues that we have these two sides of our nature in each of us. Adam 1 wants to go out and conquer the world. Adam 2 wants to obey a calling and serve the world. Adam 1 asks how things work. Adam 2 asks why things exist and what ultimately we're here for. Adam 1 wants to venture forth. Adam 2 wants to return to roots, to the home, to the warmth of a family meal, friends around a pub. And so he says sometimes these atoms go together. Sometimes having a great inner character helps you in your career, but sometimes they're in confrontation. I have a friend who hires a lot of people who, says, who asks them this question. Name a time you told the truth and it hurt you. He wants to know if they're willing to put Adam 2 ahead of Adam 1. And I'd say part of this confrontation between these two sides of our nature happened because they operate by different logics. Adam 1, the building and creating logic, Adam, it happens by an economic logic. We develop our careers by economic logic. It's straightforward. Input leads to output. Practice makes perfect. Effort leads to reward. But our moral lives do not develop that way. The moral lives happen by a moral logic which is paradoxical and inverse. And if you've had moments of moral growth, you know that it does not happen additively or linearly. It sometimes happens inversely. You have to give to receive. You have to surrender something outside yourself to gain strength within yourself. You have to conquer your desire to get what you crave. Success can lead to the greatest failure, which is arrogance and pride. Failure can lead to the greatest success, which is humility and learning. In order to fulfill yourself, you have to forget yourself. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. Now, we live in a culture and a society that encourages the Adam 1, the resume side, and sometimes is neglectful of Adam 2, of just is inarticulate about it. We live in a competitive world. It just takes a lot of time to build a big career. We live in a world of shallow and fast communications, and it's harder to be still and hear the soft, still voices inside. We live in a world where we've raised a series of generations to think extremely well of themselves. We tell them, and we tell our kids, be true to yourself, follow your passion, love yourself. We've told a couple generations that they're wonderful inside, uh, and they've believed us. And so, for example, in the United States, they did a study of High school, of 16-year-olds, and they asked them, are you a very important person? And 12, in 1950, 12% said, yes, I'm a very important. They asked the same question again in 2005, and it wasn't 12%, it was 80% who said they're very important. And that symbolizes a shift. Psychologists have a thing called the narcissism test, where they say, I'm going to read you a bunch of statements, does it apply to you? And they're statements like, I find it easy to manipulate people because I'm so remarkable. Um, <laughs> Somebody should write a biography about me. I love to look at my body. The median narcissism score, and this is global, has gone up about 30% in the last 20 years. With this has gone a great desire for fame. Fame used to rank very low on what people wanted out of life. Now it tends to rank second or third because of reality TV and whatever. We want to be famous a lot more. 
in the U.S., uh, junior high school girls, uh, 15-year-old girls were asked, would you rather be Justin Bieber's personal assistant, celebrity's personal assistant, or, pre- or president of Harvard? And by three to one, they'd rather be Justin Bieber's personal assistant. Though to be fair, I asked the president of Harvard, and she would rather be Justin Bieber's <laughs> um, College students were asked, uh, would you like to lead a life that involved a lot of fame or a life that involves a lot of sex? And by two to one, they chose a life of fame. And so I go on college campuses and say, listen, I'm on TV twice a week. I write a, <laughs> I write a column in a prominent newspaper. I'm sort of famous. Go with the sex. It's a lot better. And, and so there's been a shift, a shift toward an inflation, what I call the big me. And with that has become a diminution in our articulateness. I don't think we're bad, but our articulateness about what's going on in the moral drama inside. There's a sociologist named Christian Smith who went around to the American college students and asked them, name your last moral dilemma. 70% of them could not name a moral dilemma. They said, I pulled into a parking space. I didn't have any quarters. He would say, that's sort of a problem. It's not really a moral dilemma. (laughs) They just hadn't been given the vocabulary to explain what what a moral dilemma was. Google engrams allows us across the English-speaking world to measure our word usage. And over the last 30 years, we use words associated with economics a lot more. We use words associated with morality a lot less. So the word bravery usage is down 66%, gratitude is down 49%, humbleness is down 52%, kindness is down 56%. We're just talking about this stuff less. And if you do that, in my view, you turn into a shrewd animal. You turn life into a game. You're unable to speak in a sophisticated moral language. You will live with an unconscious boredom, not really attached to the highest ideals. And I found in my own life, you settle for a moral mediocrity. Grading yourself on a forgiving curve, you figure, I'm not really hurting anybody. People seem to like me. I must be okay. But day by day, year by year, you turn a core piece of yourself into something a little less impressive than you would have hoped. You're not really deserving of the sort of eulogy you want, and you don't glow with the inner goodness of those people you occasionally meet. And so I really wrote the book over the past few years to try to figure out how does that happen. And I'm not a philosopher, so I didn't do it by philosophy. I believe we learn by example. We learn from each other. And so the book is a series of people who, who at age 20 were kind of messy, but by age 70 were kind of magnificent. And they exemplify the activities I think we need to live a life of depth. And so one of those uh, people I write about is Dwight Eisenhower. When Eisenhower was nine, he wanted to go out trick-or-treating. His mom, a remarkable woman named Ida Eisenhower, said, no, you're too young. So he punched a tree in his front yard. He threw a temper tantrum, punched it, and rubbed all the skin off his fingers. Uh, Ida sent him to his room, had him cry for an hour, went up to him, bound his wounds, and recited a verse from Proverbs. He that conquereth his own soul is greater than he who taketh the city. Sixty years later, writing his memoirs, Eisenhower said that was the most important conversation of his life because it taught him two things. First, it taught him humility. Some people think humility is thinking lowly of yourself, but in fact, humility is accurate self-awareness from a distance. It's a state of radical honesty about yourself. And so he learned first that he had this problem, which was his temper. And second, Ida taught him that the central drama of life is not the external climb to success. It is more foundational than that, it is the internal confrontation with your own weakness. And so Eisenhower did fantastically well in life. But it was all predicated on a, a constructed drama, a struggle against his own temper. We think of him as this garrulous, cheerful kind of guy. That was a creation that he did himself. In World War II, he's living here in the presidency in Washington. He's lying at night awake, anxiety attacks, insomnia, drinking a lot, throat infection, blood pressure spiking filled with hatred and anxiety, but he knew he could not lead from a position of anxiety and anger. He had to lead from cheerful confidence, and so he constructed a persona that would allow him to lead. Some of the things he did were gimmicky and small. He would take the names of the people he hated and write them down on a piece of paper and rip them up, and it was just a way to construct a person of cheerfulness and make himself strong in his weakest place. And so from Eisenhower, we learned the value of of self-defeat. Another person I write about is Samuel Johnson, born here in 1709, barely survived the ordeal of his birth. 
handed over to a wet nurse whose milk infected him with tuberculosis, rendering him blind in one eye, deaf in one ear, developed smallpox, which left him scarred, victim of a bad operation that led to his face jarred open. They opened his arm to bleed him and left the wound open for six years. He developed what now looks like Tourette's syndrome and OCD. He went to Oxford, left after a year, became a teacher, failed after a year. He lived a life up to age 30 that he said was radically wretched. From Johnson, we learn how to make use of suffering. We all have moments in our life of suffering. When you lose a loved one, you get dumped by a boyfriend or girlfriend, you lose a job. And some people are shriveled by the suffering, but some people are enlarged by it, and people of depth are enlarged. Paul Tillich, the theologian, says what suffering does is it takes us below the everydayness of life and reminds us we're not who we thought we were. It carves into what we thought was the basement of our souls and carves through that floor, revealing a cavity below, carves through that floor, revealing a cavity below. So the first thing suffering does is it introduces you to yourself. And Johnson developed great self-understanding as a result of his lifelong suffering. The second thing it does, suffering gives you empathy. If you suffer, you begin to understand what other people are going through in their own sufferings. And Johnson had a tremendous capacity for empathy. And then the third thing suffering does is it lifts you upward towards some sense of transcendence and service. I have friends who lost a kid when their son was six. And they didn't say after two years, you know, we've suffered a lot over two years. We should just go out and party and be happier. No one does that. They created a foundation, which is called the Hope for Henrique Foundation, to turn their suffering into a narrative of meaning and redemption. And that's what Johnson did. He came here, he started writing, and he wrote with moral purpose to tie himself down to the reality of the truth. He, he wrote in order to name everything he was afraid of and to stare at it bravely and courageously. And from the messy man he was at 30, he turned himself by death into something truly substantial and profound. And when he died, people understood that something important had been lost. A colleague said upon his death, he has made a chasm which not only nothing can fill up, but which nothing has a tendency to fill up. Johnson is dead. Let us go with the next best. There is nobody. No man can be said to put you in mind of Johnson. So Johnson teaches us first that suffering can be turned into something large. And then he teaches us that intellectual inquiry can be a moral enterprise to ground you and solidify you inside. Third person I'll mention is a woman named Frances Perkins. Frances Perkins was a, a young woman in her 20s who wanted to do good in the world, but had not found her outlet. She had worked in Chicago working with the poor. She had worked in Philadelphia combating sex trafficking. Uh, she had worked in New York doing consumer activism. She was having tea one day in lower Manhattan in 1911, uh, and she hears a commotion in Washington Square, if anybody of you know Washington Square in Lower Manhattan. She runs out with the lady she's having tea with, looks across, and sees a fire. And she stumbled across one of the most famous fires in American history, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. She runs up to it, and she thinks she sees bundles of clothing being thrown out of the 10th floor window. The 8th, 9th, and 10th floors are on fire. But it's not bundles of clothing, it's like 9-11, where people are opting, instead of being burned to death, to leap to their deaths. And she sees a man lift seamstresses across the windowsill and drop them into space. He lifts a second, a third, a fourth, who is his girlfriend, who he kisses, drops her, and then he himself goes. And that moment was what you might call her call within a call. She already knew she wanted to be an activist of some sort. But there are some moments when a call and a vocation becomes purified. When it's no longer about the income you're going to get, it's no longer about the status you're going to get, you simply become purified and self-quieted as an instrument in the cause you're serving. And ever after that fire, she became a ruthless instrument for the cause of worker safety. She would work with anybody, she would compromise with anything, she next spent the next 60 years pursuing that single cause of worker safety. She goes up to Albany, the New York State Capitol, and is a lobbyist for worker safety legislation. She's a young woman. It's, you know, 1920. Uh, the legislatures, who are not always the most enlightened human beings on the face of the earth, won't take her seriously. So she keeps a, a, a file folder at home called Notes on the Male Mind. Uh, and she says, they won't take me seriously because I'm a young woman, 
but they all want to be loved by their moms. And so she begins dressing like an 80-year-old woman. Gray frumpy dress, tri-corner hat, old-fashioned hairstyle, gets the nickname Mama Perkins, and uh, passes this amazing legislation. And then is hired by Franklin Roosevelt when he's governor and becomes the first woman in American cabinet as Secretary of Labor for 16 years under Franklin Roosevelt. And she teaches us the power of vocation. If we talked to somebody who was deep, we would not say they were really deep unless they had a calling and a vocation. And she didn't find a vocation the way we tell young people to find a vocation, to look within themselves and find their passion. 80% of young people do not have a passion. They don't know what their passion is. She asked a different question. It was not what do I want from life, but what is life summoning me to do? Her life was summoned by exterior circumstances. What problem in the world is calling me to solve it? Where does the world's deepest problem meet my deepest need? And she found that in the fire. And it's not looking inside, it's looking outside. And she shows us the structure of how vocations are formed. The final person I'll mention uh, is George Eliot. Now, Eliot teaches us the power of love. We would not say somebody has real depth unless they've had moments of suffering. They probably have to have that. They probably have to have a vocation. They have to have self-confrontation. But any person we would call deep and of character is capable of tremendous love. So she was born without that love to a mother who was too ill to really provide it for her and then um, who died when she was young. And so in her 20s, Elliot, who was then Marianne Evans, of course, uh, fell in love with every guy she met, tall, short, young, old, married, unmarried. She'd fall for a guy. She'd sort of entrance him with her conversation, and then his wife would kick her out of the house. That was the norm. She falls in love um, at age 32 with Herbert Spencer, the great philosopher. And she writes in this letter, which is at once pathetic and profound. The pathetic part is him, her begging him to marry her. Please marry me. Please, please, please marry me. You won't even notice me around the house. I won't cause you any trouble. If you don't marry me, I'll die. But then in the end, she ends with a flourish. She writes, I suppose no woman ever before wrote such a letter as this. But I am not ashamed, for I am conscious in the light of reason and true refinement that I am worthy of your respect and tenderness, whatever gross men or vulgar-minded women might think of me. That assertion, I'm worthy of your respect and tenderness, is sort of a crucial moment in her life. In lives of character, there's always a moment where you might call the agency moment, when you stop being dependent on the criteria of external blame and external praise and external criticism and develop one's own internal criteria for when you're doing well and when you're not doing well, when you're of worth and when you're not. And in my experience, that agency moment tends to happen to people in their 30s. And it happened to her. And so she knew her own value and could make her own decisions. It did not work out with Spencer, but then it worked out with this writer, George Lewis. Lewis, as you probably know, was another writer, legally married, even though he was estranged from his wife and his wife was living with another guy and had three kids with him. But it's Victorian era, legally married. If she chooses to live with Lewis, she will be labeled an adulteress and cut off from society. She has a choice of Lewis or everybody else. She thinks for a week, goes with him. She writes, I have counted the cost of the step that I have taken and am prepared to bear without irritation or bitterness renunciation by all my friends. I am not mistaken in the person to whom I have attached myself. He is worthy of the sacrifice I have incurred. My only anxiety is that he be rightly judged. And in that daring choice, she shows us and identifies and helps us think through when we use the word love, what do we mean? What does it give us? First thing it gives us, it humbles us. When you're in love, you're not in control of your own mind. You're thinking about your beloved all the time. Love is like being invaded by an army you want to be conquered by. The second thing love does is it opens up hard ground. It gets beneath the crust of life and reveals uh, fertile and vulnerable flesh below, making you more vulnerable to pain but also to joy. It decenters the self. It reminds you your riches are not in yourself, they're in another. And the fourth thing it does is it fuses you with another. Montaigne said that love and friendship eliminate the distinction between giving and receiving. When you give to your beloved, you're giving to a piece of yourself, so it's more pleasurable to give than to receive in such a relationship. And so she experienced this poetic, idealistic love in the first blush of love that people feel, the kind that Taylor Swift sings about. But she also, and she was older, experienced what Roger Scruton calls a second love. 
And that's the love that happens when you're older, maybe you're already in a relationship, you're a little banged up by life, your partner's banged up by life, and you are in love with a completely realistic understanding of who you are and who that other person is. And that love is less poetic, and it's less idealistic, but it's more enduring. And this is really the nature of her love by the time she was with him. A friend of mine described this love in a wedding toast, which I like. His name is Leon Wieseltier, and he said, This kind of love is private, and it is particular. Its object is the specificity of this man and that woman, the distinctiveness of this spirit and that flesh. This love prefers deep to wide, here to there, the grasp to the reach. When the day is done and the lights are out, there is only this other heart, this other mind, this other face, to assist in repelling one's demons or in greeting one's angels. It does not matter who the present is. When one consents to marry, one consents to be truly known, which is an ominous prospect, and so one bets on love to correct for the ordinariness of the impression and to call forth the forgiveness that is invariably required. Marriages are exposures. We may be heroes to our spouses, but we may not be idols. And so this was the kind of love she and Lewis had. It was more or less a happy love. Her career flourished. He encouraged her to be a novelist. And it was lifelong, at least as long as he lived. And so when we think of the things that happen, we think of these activities. The love, the self-defeat, the vocation and the suffering, the agency moments. And these are all pieces that go into character. And when we look at these, activ- these people, their lives were internal. But they, when you look at them overall, they had a different philosophy than the one that is prevalent today. We live in a romantic era where we tell kids and we tell ourselves that deep down inside we're really good and that the sins that, are, that afflict us are caused by social structures and things outside themselves. And that's somewhat true. But these people did not believe that. They did not believe they were good inside. They did not believe in trusting themselves, loving themselves. They believed in distrusting themselves. They hewed to a philosophy you might call the crooked timber philosophy of human nature. They were divided creatures, both deeply good and splendidly endowed. The struggle against weakness and sin is the central drama of life, not the external struggle for success. In this struggle, humility is the greatest virtue because humility is radical self-honesty. In this struggle, pride is the greatest vice. Pride blinds you to your own weaknesses. Character is built over the course of a confrontation with yourself. No person can achieve mastery in his or her own. We all need redemptive assistance from outside. I started this book thinking character was a little Victorian figure of self-control and willpower. But over the course of reading about these lives, I realized none of us is really strong enough to defeat selfishness and self-deception. We all need to be anchored to something outside if we're going to do it. So a person with character is able to make extremely profound commitments. In the realm of intellect, such a person has firm convictions about fundamental truths. In the realm of emotion, she's enmeshed in a web of unconditional loves. In the realm of action, she's committed to causes that can't be completed in a single lifetime. And it's all done together. It's done with partners, with friends, with lovers and communities. It's not a solitary enterprise. It's not an individual enterprise. And there is, in it, moments of tranquility and joy and real camaraderie. And all these people I've just described had moments of great camaraderie. But finally, there's that inner light an inner light that comes from tranquility and gratitude. The ambitions of Adam 1, the external Adam, are never satisfied. There's always something out there. But spiritual ambitions can be satisfied, at least for a time. And so I'll just end by mentioning someone I write about in the book a great deal, who's St. Augustine. Born in 354 in North Africa, has got a mom named Monica, who is the helicopter mom to beat all helicopter moms. She wants to control his time, control his thinking, who he can marry, what kind of Christian to be. Uh, he, he wants to leave, run away from her. So he gets on a boat to Africa. She's on the shore, or to Italy. She's on the shore screaming at him. She gets on the next boat, tracks him down. And it's a devouring love that she has for him. And it's a life of conflict. He goes through the course of his life. And finally, she says to him, she's in her 50s, he's in her 30s. She says to him, they're in a town called Ostia, all my life I've wanted you to be a certain sort of man, a certain sort of Christian. 
and you are that man now. Uh, and she says, my work here is done. Uh, I can die. I thought I wanted to die back in Africa where I was born, but God will find me. God's everywhere. I can die here. And in fact, she does die nine days later. And Augustine describes their last conversation. And after a life of conflict, finally when they're spiritually at one and spiritually at peace with each other, it's a, a life of great harmony and spiritual conversation. They went beyond, he writes, the very highest delight of the earthly senses to the very purest, beyond the purest material light. We came to our own minds and went beyond them into the realm of pure spirit. And then he has a long sentence that is very hard to parse. And that sentence has one word recurring through it. And the word is hushed. And so he said, over the course of our conversation, our voices became hushed. The sound of the birds became hushed. The wind in the trees became hushed. Our hearts became hushed. You just have this repetition, hushed, hushed, hushed. And in that sentence, you get a, just a great sense of tranquility and peace and a settling in and almost a dissolving joy. And that is where to be, have a life of struggle and ambition and then finally to settle in to a sense of pure harmony and gratitude is really what I think we were all born to strive for uh, and what these lives uh, are meant to illustrate. Thank you very much. That was beautifully done. Thank you. Um, I will start by asking you a little bit about the relationship between Adam 1 and Adam 2. It's very striking as one reads the book that there is a question in the lives of each of these people, partly of what they need to renounce, in effect abandoning some of their Adam 1 self, and partly of what they need to strive toward, which is an Adam 2 self. And I wonder how much are Adam 1 and Adam 2 um, in opposition. Um, you know, we sit here now, you've given an extremely moving talk about character, you're also number one on the Times bestseller list. How do we reconcile that? Yeah, yeah. How do we reconcile it? Yeah, well, I, I mentioned before, I, I, the book was going to be called Humility, uh, and I was going to have the words humility in really long letters, small letters, and then David Brooks. David. <laughs> um, so, believe in the paradox of promoting a book on uh, Adam too is not lost on me. Uh, the way I would say it is that they're both important. This is not about renunci- renouncing worldly achievement. Uh, I think we all want to lead lives where we, we are missed when we go and where we contribute in some material way or some physical way to the external world. Uh, but I guess I found a couple things in my own life, and I, I teach uh, this cl- at class at Yale, and my students are, have been so... Um, wired to be little achievement machines and little adult pleasers that they really have not been educated in how to have the internal life. So there's, the thing that strikes me most is the simple crowding out effect. That time is spent and the moral vocabulary is not there. And uh, So they're not bad, they're just inarticulate. And if I ask them, well, how do you be good? Or if you ask the people who are running Yale University, do you teach character among your students? They talk about community service. And so I'll ask my students, you know, what are you doing across spring break? And it's always, you know, I'm unicycling across Thailand while reading the lepers. Uh, (laughs) Um, But but you ask them something about their internal world, they answer with an answer about their external world. And their language, and I think the language of our society, is very utilitarian. And so I don't think it's about renouncing the one, but it's in supplementing with, as I say, a language that is not utilitarian. And when we think about love, that is not a utilitarian emotion. You love without counting the cost, and you love unconditionally. And you make commitments. And believe me, my students have a great deal of trouble making commitments because there's always that utilitarian cog going on in their minds, what they call FOMO, fear of missing out. Mm. Uh, And so... I, I think there's sometimes a tension, and in all our lives, I'll, you know, in my own life, the, the sentence in the book that my friends agree with the most is the one where I say, I'm, I'm a paid pundit, I'm, a, I'm paid to be a, a, a bloviating blowhard. 
and a narcissist. And that's what I am paid for. I have a wear a microphone a lot. But if you understand the career and the character challenges inherent in that profession, then hopefully you can struggle against it. So I think there's the crowding out effect and then the corrosive effect of all of our careers and the challenge it presents to us in trying to lead that inner life. I'm interested in the way that the internal and the external are brought into some kind of synchronicity. Because on the one hand, you've just said of your students that they are focused on the external and use external words to respond to questions about the internal. On the other hand, part of the argument for the book is that we have become focused inward toward the self. And one of the things you say about particularly uh, Francis Perkins or Dorothy Day is that they were people who ultimately refused to use the vocabulary of inwardness and spoke only in terms of outward service. Yeah. So how do you, how do you balance the, the outward yeah. and the inward? They, it's funny, they went through stages. They went down inside themselves, and they were often like Dorothy Day, who was a, a Catholic social worker, and she created soup kitchens and, and homeless shelters and lived a life of poverty with the people she was serving, did it for half a century. She had a great capacity for self-criticism, and she, she would journal, she would write about herself. And so there is that necessary quality of going in. But none of them stayed in. They, they went down, and then, and then they shot outward. And so in Dorothy Day's case, she was, she was the sort of person who uh, not only read books, she read novels as wisdom literature to teach her how to live. She read with a passion that is amazing. Unfortunately, she read a lot of Dostoevsky. Uh, and so she drank a lot. Uh, and she caroused a lot. And she had um, some suicide attempts and, and abortions and things, and a messy life. And then she gave birth to her daughter, and she wrote up after that birth, uh, if I had painted the greatest painting, composed the greatest symphony, or written the greatest novel, I could not have felt the more exalted creator than I did when they placed my child in my arms. Uh, I, never, I felt floods of love and joy upon the birth of my child, and with that came a need to worship and to adore. And so she needed somebody to thank, and she became a Catholic and then sent, spent a life of service. So what was an internal feeling of love for her daughter turned into an external love. I have a friend who's a poet named Christian Wyman, a very great poet. He says love is always on the move. It always wants to flow beyond the object into some wider thing. And that was the case for her, it was the case for Perkins. What started out as internal self-interrogation led to an external commitment as the realization became what you, the problems you found inside could not be solved by alone. And so they were deeply non-individualistic. Um, right. Um, I love the, the line that you quoted from Spencer Reese that I think was within another quotation. Um, all I know is that the more I loved him, the more I loved the world, and that sense of how things open out. Um, sin. You didn't mention sin very much from the podium, but you mentioned sin quite a lot and say rather wonderfully that it's a word now largely associated with fattening puddings rather than with um, sort of moral transgressions. But what, it seems to me that you're going to have a, a tough road ahead if your purpose is to return us all to seeing ourselves as sinful creatures and uh, have us largely focused on our inherently sinful nature. So um, what do you think about sin? Why did we lose the thread with sin? And what are the ways in which those ideas of self-criticism and of trying to see oneself realistically rather than being in a state of glorious denial, what are the ways that those can be achieved? And do they require us to return to the specific morality um, enshrined particularly in Judeo-Christian but also in other religious texts in which sin and the essential sinful nature of man were so focal. Yeah. So this uh, shows that I'm a shiftless opportunist because uh, in the U.S. when I was down in the Bible Belt in Mobile, Alabama, I was like, sin, 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 sin. <laughs> but I'm it's godless heathens in New York and London. It's like, I don't mention that word. Uh, so, um, but I, I think it's a word that's necessary to reclaim. Now, we understand why the word sin, and I should say I spoke about this book on American TV a couple months ago, and I got a call from a top editor in New York, one of the really great editors. He said, I loved what you said about the book. Don't use the word sin. Uh, use the word insensitive. Uh, but I wrote the book because insensitive doesn't do. You need sin. And I think it, it's impossible to understand what's the moral drama that's going on inside 
uh, unless you have a lot of words that we've inherited from our civilization, sin, virtue, vice, grace, redemption, soul. I think we need to reclaim those words either in a religious or secular context. And the, the reason I like the word sin as opposed to shortcoming, which is a good word, I, I'd be fine with that. And first of all, I understand why we got rid of it. We got rid of it because sin was used by a lot of self-righteous people to make other people feel really bad about themselves. Sin was used by a lot of joyless people who wanted to crack down on sex. And so I understand why it was gotten rid of. But I like the word sin for a couple reasons. One, it reminds us that there are moral stakes involved. That every time we make a decision, we're turning a core piece of ourselves into something either slightly higher or something lower. And that when you, sin is an inherently moral word. Secondly, I like it because it's collective. We have individual mistakes, but we all have the same sins stretching back over history. We're all a little self-centered, we're all a little selfish, and we fight those sins together with our friends and our lovers. And so it reminds us that we're all in this together. Uh, And the third thing I like about the the word sin is it illustrates in more specific ways how you combat it. Some sins are like stains that you have to cleanse, Some sins are like a traitor. Adultery is like being a traitor. And there are different sorts of sins, and people have thought through over the centuries the different sorts of sins and the different sorts of things you do to combat the sin. And the final thing it, it does, it illustrates a perversity in our nature. And so the way I describe sin in the modern context is this way. We all love a lot of things. We all love fame, or most of us, or or admiration, or status, or truth, or family, or friendship. And we all know, generally have the same sense that some of the things we love are higher than other things. So most of us know that the love of truth is higher than the love of money. And if you're lying to make money, you're probably doing something wrong. And if someone, a friend tells you a secret, and you blab it at a dinner party, you're putting your love of popularity above your love of friendship. And we know that's wrong. And sin is simply getting your loves out of order. It's putting a higher, a lower sin above a higher, a lower love above a higher love. And to, and to, when you clarify that, then sin is not about some inner depravity. It's just about some perversity in our nature that gets our loves out of order. And it helps you think through when you do something you're ashamed of, what love did I put higher that shouldn't be higher? And how can I sort of make it better? Um, let's talk about this moment in time, uh, you say, and I think it's very intriguing, that the movement toward um, a kind of solipsism grew out not so much of 60s radicalism, but really out of the great generation's exhaustion um, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, that really the seeds of this significant shift were sown in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Um, You've also acknowledged, I think, in various places that while we have moved to a time when more people think that they're important than used to and people are uh, lacking a vocabulary for moral conversation, we've also created a more just and tolerant society in many ways than we had in the past. So what are the models from that time? How did they get perverted? And was the perversion of those ideals the necessary precondition to the social reforms that have actually made life richer and more uh, meaningful in this time? So the first thing to be said is, there's some elegiac tone to a lot of the book and, and a lot of the characters I just mentioned, but we should never want to go back to the past. Uh, it was a more racist culture, a more sexist culture, more anti-Semitic. Uh, the food was tremendously boring. Uh, we just would not want to go back. Second, that a lot of the self-esteem movements were necessary because large, numbers, large percentages of society, most notably women and minorities, had been trained over the centuries or oppressed over the centuries into thinking too lowly of themselves and there had to be an assertion. But I think what shifted was not the level of self-confidence but the nature of our self-understanding. And that's where I think we, that's the one area of life where I think we have something to learn from a tradition that we've accidentally thrown by the side. And that's this tradition that I call the the crooked timber tradition after Immanuel Kant's from the crooked timber of humanity no straight thing was made. And that's understanding our own fundamental brokenness. And that's the self-destruct. And that, I think, the standard story, as you say, it was in the 60s that, you know, the Woodstock happened and it was all destroyed. 
and the greatest generation was noble and self-sacrificing, and then came the narcissistic baby boomers. But that simply doesn't square with the reality. Basically, in my view, what happened was the Depression happened, World War II happened, people had had 16 years of deprivation. The war's over, and they just want to relax. And what really explodes in the 1950s and the late 1940s is consumerism and advertising. And the ethos of consumerism is your desires are worthy, you should get what you want. And so people were taught to trust their desires. In addition, there were a whole series of books that simply had looked at the horrors of World War II and they just wanted to turn the page. And so there were a whole series of books that said we're going to write a new Ten Commandments in 1946, 47, and 48. And we're not going to do away with that old thou shalt not Ten Commandments. The new one shall be thou shalt love thyself, thou shalt actualize thyself. And there was a book by a guy named Joshua Liebman that was number one in the New York Times bestseller list for 56 straight weeks. Another one called The Mature Mind, number one for 32 straight weeks. A book called The Power of Positive Thinking about how great we are inside. Dr. Spock's Baby Book comes out, which says if your child steals something, just give him what he stole and tell him he just needs to ask for it next time, which is a really realistic, reasonably optimistic view of human nature. <laughs> and so then Carl Rogers in Humanistic Psychology comes along, and you get a whole shift that says you are wonderful inside. And the self-esteem movement in the 70s, and that's somewhat true, but the other tradition, the more realistic tradition, that you're broken inside, that was simply cast aside and forgotten. And really, the, this book is an attempt to rediscover it. Right. And do you, think that, um, uh, do you think that Freud had anything to do with it? Do you think our evolving sense of what human consciousness is was involved and the sense that in each of us there is a great deal that is unconscious and that by bringing it up to consciousness we somehow achieve a liberation? It was the one theme that I looked for in the book and yeah. didn't quite find there. Yeah, I, I, um, Freud is complicated. I, I think if you think you can deliver yourself simply through bringing stuff to consciousness, then... Uh, those solutions, I think, are not available to us. The struggle against weakness is never really over. But I do think, if you want to, the emphasis on the unconscious uh, should, if anything, introduce, us, introduce into us a sense of modesty. Uh, in some ways, this book started out, the last book was called The Social Animal, and it was, a lot of it was about the cognitive sciences. And fortunately, it came out before a book called Th- Thinking Fast and Slow by Danny Kahneman on the same subject, but a much better book. So I'm, I'm glad I came out first. Uh, and so that book is about the biases and heuristics that warp our thinking. And some of them are loss aversion. You know, somebody did a study of 2.5 million putts on the professional golfing circuit. And pu- pu- golfers from all distances putt more accurately when putting for par than when putting for birdie because we fear failure more than we desire success. And so it's about these little biases and things that distort our own thinking processes, um, you know, the, the priming, all these things. And when you read Kahneman's book, you're reminded of how much we should distrust our own reason. And it is a counsel to cognitive humility. And that and once you're aware of the, sort of the bugs in your own brain, hopefully you can compensate for some of them. Uh, my favorite one was Israeli parole boards grant parole in 13% of all cases except for in the hour after breakfast and lunch, when they grant parole in something like 40% of cases. And so that's just a bias. You should understand you have certain weird things going on in your brain. And my argument would be we also have bugs in our soul, that morally we just have perversities of our nature that cause us to lie a little, cause us to self-deceive a little, cause us to be a little selfish. If anybody has spare time, I highly recommend, if you haven't read it, the commencement address that David Foster Wallace gave at Kenyon College where he makes the obvious point that when we see the world, we see the world in front of us, beside us, behind us, we just have a self-centered point of view. When you're in in the middle of traffic, you don't think, we're all stuck in traffic. You think, I'm stuck in traffic. And so there's just a natural self-centeredness to us. And I think that's a bug in our soul. Before we open up to questions, I will ask you the uh, the other one, which is that I'm very struck by the ways that the gender roles play out in this book. I'm struck by the selflessness of Frances Perkins that nonetheless seems to have compromised her ability 
to be fully engaged in the role of loving wife and mother, which was what was expected, certainly if we met of her generation, the sense that in her quest to save humanity, she sometimes neglected her actual children. And I'm touched by what to me was one of the most touching portraits in the book. I mean, the mothers come up a lot, so whatever that sort of think British thing was, the, the Jewish thing is still going strong there. Um, but we have, um, you know, the description, I thought that Dwight Eisenhower in your description, I didn't find him very appealing. I found him impressive, but not very appealing. His mom sounded fantastic. Um, and Augustine's mother, even though she sounded impossible and maddening, also seemed like quite a compelling figure. So do you think that this uh, capacity for self-sacrifice or self-regulation in the name of some greater good um, is stronger in men who have the uh, traditional role of heroics or is stronger in the women who have traditionally always really put um, others ahead of themselves? And how does that inflect your description of characters? Impressively, um, in such a book, um, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but you you have women and men described in very parallel terms. Yeah. So... A lot of the characters in the book did not have great personal lives. Uh, Frances Perkins did not really get along with her daughter. Her husband uh, suffered from insanity. Uh, Dorothy Day, she had a problematic relation with her daughter. She did not marry the father of her daughter and stayed celibate for the last 50 years of her life, even though she was a very sexual one. Um, I don't think that's necessary to a life of character, (laughs) I hope. I think that, two things, I think that's a function, a lot of what I'm writing about is the 1940s. And I do think one of the severe weaknesses of the 1940s was that parents, and especially fathers, had just a great deal of trouble expressing their love for their children. Uh, and it just was an emotionally frozen time. And so George Marshall had a great deal of trouble expressing his love for his wife. Eisenhower uh, could treat women horribly. And I hope that's an independent variable. But there are certainly people, and Ida Eisenhower, I'll just quickly mention, She was born in 1862 in a place called Shenandoah, Virginia. Her mom died when she was five, her dad when she was 11. She became an indentured servant to a family, basically, that treated her badly. They went out for a picnic one day when she was about 13, so she just walked across the state, found a high school, got herself enrolled, and then decided high school's not good enough. So she got herself onto a wagon train, got herself out to Kansas, and around 1880 got herself into a university, uh, and got herself through university, which is just astounding. Uh, and then she married this guy, David Eisenhower, who was a bit of a pill. Uh, and she gave birth to six sons, all of whom were phenomenally successful and all of whom worshipped the ground she walked on. And she was quite religious, but also quite joyful. And she's just this magnificent character who you fall in love with. Um, and so she's the example of someone who really had a great family life. The others did not, in part, I think, because in those days, I hope more than ours. Uh, a life of public service cost you a life of private happiness. And I hope more than ours that we can have the life of public vocation that they had, but also have an amazing family life, Uh, just because I hope we're better at intimacy than they were. I think we're we're driven to be good. That I've never met anybody, I've never heard of anybody who didn't seek in some primordial way a life of meaning and goodness. There's a guy named Roy Baumeister, who interviewed serial killers. And they all had developed um, rationalizations to explain why what they were doing was really virtuous. And they all, everybody does this. And so I do think we have this innate drive to do something good. And and that if it's unfulfilled, uh, people feel a deep vacuum. And I will say, uh, I've spent a a great deal of time over the last few months with hedge fund people, and people who are really rich. Uh, and uh, the number of people who have told me I've led a life of success but not a life of significance, uh, if I had a dollar for that, I'd be, I would be rich. And that, even for those who are financially very successful, they feel that acutely and painfully. I don't know if that's answered your question, but I would say there's this, there seems to be just an innate spiritual urge Um, which actually is measured genetically. You can measure the strength of it genetically. 
Well, I'm hopeful that the book sales that will ensue from this conversation will step in place of the hedge funders and um, assure you a life of uh, opulent luxury. Um, But I would just say uh, that the experience of reading the book really is uh, quite an extraordinary uh, experience. And it was extraordinary to me because I read some bits of it and thought, oh, come, this is, you know, this is a sort of exaggerated notion of virtue, and it seemed over the top, and I was resistant in places to some of what you were doing. And then I would come across a sentence or a phrase or a thought or a portrait of someone, and I would think, I ought to be slightly different as a parent, or I'm going to write things a little differently from here. It, it, it gets into you, this book, um, and affects, I think, your own moral compass uh, in a profound and very exquisite way. So we're very fortunate to have had you with Thank us. You. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.